Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good morning, everybody. So, how's everybody? <laughs> There's the, uh, the Starbucks table over here. Um, <laughs> the Starbucks side of the room, maybe. Sam's not here, in case you couldn't figure that out already. Um, he's at home, he's taking care of Kareen today, and... Um, She's doing well, just recovering. And so we want to keep her in prayer, keep them both in prayer. And um, since Sam isn't here, Brian couldn't be here. I think Lydia's sick. Like the whole thing, the whole <laughs> lot of it happened today, the so there's no music today. I could have done both. Hey, we're here. <laughs> Rick volunteered to sing some Ave Maria. But um, yeah, <laughs> next time. <laughs> So it's just me. So um, let's see. I have no announcements. But if you would like to support Genesis, the work that we do here, uh, there's a slide coming up right here that'll tell you how. You can go to the website. We accept Zelle, Venmo, and uh, of course, you can always mail a check in or drop a check off here at the Genesis building. Um, There you go. But thank you for being here this morning, for everybody that sat up this morning and got everything organized, and thank you for everybody who's tuning in right now. I just want to say hello and good morning to you, and we'll dig right in. So I want to set the scene for you. So we're going to use some imagination if you'd like to, you, you can close your eyes and picture yourself. No. Picture yourself 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. And you're wearing a robe, and there's sand between the sole of your shoe and your foot, and you feel the warm air. And off in the distance, you smell the putrid smell of burning trash. And you're walking what we call the Via Della Rosa, the winding road, following a procession of people who are shouting and jeering and mocking the man at the front of the procession who's carrying his own cross. And you're following with curiosity 
and you're trying to see through the myriad of people the man at the front who's being led by Roman soldiers. And you walk and you walk and you're, you're trying to get a glimpse into what's happening and all these people are doing the same thing as you. Everyone's just trying to catch a glimpse of what's going on. And you get to the place where they stop. And you push and shove and shimmy your way to the front where you can see the man laid down on the cross. And you see one Roman soldier hand another one a large nail, maybe six to nine inches. And another man holds a hammer. And you see them put the nail to the man's wrist, the the hammer in the air, and you turn your head because you just can't watch what you know is coming next. And you hear, bang, bang, bang. And then you wake up, and you're in bed. And you still hear, bang, bang, bang. And you feel like you've just witnessed something, like you've time-traveled. But you still hear, bang, bang, bang. And so you focus in, you get up out of bed, maybe you walk over to the window and open it to see that it has rained. And there's rain runoff dripping from the the roof of your house onto the tin trash can lid right outside your window. Bang, bang, bang. And you realize you've just had a dream that puts you at the scene of the cross 2,000 years ago. It's a dream I literally had 20 years ago. And I still remember every vivid detail of that dream. And this is why. The human brain is a storyteller. The human brain is wired for story. Have you guys ever seen the movie The Truman Show? Most of us have. Some of us have not. It's an, I think it was like the late 90s maybe. But it stars Jim Carrey as the unassuming insurance salesman whose whole life is literally a reality show. The people in his life, his wife, his neighbors, his neighborhood, his boss, his coworkers, they're all actors. The people at the, at the bakery, all actors. Everybody in his life is an actor, and he is the only one that doesn't know He's on live TV 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And during an interview about the show, there's a man named Christoph who's the architect of the show. He's the director of the show. He is asked how Truman, Truman Burbank, who's now 30 years old, how has Truman never questioned his reality? And he gives this very simple but profound answer. He says, we accept the reality of the world with which we're presented. And it's as simple as that. We accept the reality of the world with which we're presented. Science actually proves this. Neuroscience shows shows us 
that we are quick to believe the framework that has been given to us from the time we were children all the way through our, our adult years with a minimal amount or even anecdotal evidence. And we fight to keep that story alive and well in our own heads, even when we're presented with other facts, even when we're presented with other ideas that appear to be true, we reject those because we hold on to ours. And it's not because we're dumb, and it's not because we're gullible or we're sheeple. It's because of the way the human brain is wired. It's cause and effect. We might be taught something as a child, and we might put it to the test, and if we find it to be reliable information, and through a series of cause and effect, those things become our system of beliefs. And those beliefs become extremely personal to us. And they become personal because that's who we, they become who we are. They become our core. Those beliefs that we have, the worldview that we grow up into, become who we are. Now, I want to tap into an illustration that Brian gave last month. So let's talk about Santa. When we're little, we learn stories about old St. Nick. There are family traditions. There are cartoons from the 50s that might as well be documentaries. (laughs) There is a slew of story, and it's in the newspapers. It's in the malls. It's everywhere we go. This This tubby guy gets hauled around the world in one night in a sleigh powered by flying reindeer, breaking into houses and leaving gifts for children all over the world. Sounds legit, right? But where's the evidence? There's gifts under the tree. Ah. Now, if you've even questioned that and you see a gift under the tree that's from Santa, that's enough evidence. That's enough reliable information for our little brains to go, the story is real. And I'm bought in and I believe this. Until Davey, that mean kid at school, mocks your your beliefs and you come home from your sophomore year in college to confront your parents. (laughs) Truth is tricky and truth can be traumatic because at some point when you're presented with facts that disagree with what you believe to be true, you're going to either have to reject it or realign your worldview around new information and new truth. In other words, we have to confront the hard, cold reality that what we believed might not be as it is. And that's hard work. Someone has said, I don't know who, but I like the quote, if you want someone to know the truth, give them facts. But if you want someone to love the truth, tell them a story. Stories have been at the heart of humanity since the very beginning, since before there was written language, since before there was verbal language. There were stories being told. 
Stories are how we make sense of the world. Stories connect us. They create unity. Stories move us to action or maybe to tears. Stories seep into our brains and they live on and on and on. When we go to weddings, the maid of honor, the best man stand up and they tell a story. When we go to a funeral, the people go up and they tell stories. If we look at our brain, we would see that our brain is a trinity. It's triune. There's three parts, the neocortex, the limbic brain, and the reptilian brain. And I'm going to make this non-sciencey because that's how my brain works. The neocortex is the part of your brain that deals with logic and language. Um, it looks for cause and effect. It looks for change. And it asks, what can I learn from this? Why is this important for me? The limbic, or what some people call the mammal brain, deals with emotions and um, memories. And it asks, am I loved? How does this make me feel? Is this something that I should remember? And what they call the reptilian brain, this is survival mode. This is, this, is the, this is the part that wants to protect you. But it's also your rote memory, the things that keep your body functioning. It asks, am I safe? This is why to this very day, if you sat me down and made me watch probably 85% of the episodes of Little House on the Prairie, I will cry. Every single time. It's, it gets me right in the limbic brain every time. It's also why we're prone to root for the good guys when we're watching Star Wars or some other lesser movie. <clears throat> we identify with the hero, especially I think this is true for men, but, but everybody at some level, we have a deep intrinsic desire to be heroic. See, facts speak to our logical neocortex, and that's important, your, your mathematic, your logic brain. But story, a well-told story, is hard-hitting. And a story has the power to get into all three parts of your brain. And of course, before science told us this, Jesus knew this. It's why we read these words in Matthew 13, 34. Jesus always used stories and illustrations when speaking to the crowds. In fact, he never spoke to them without using such parables. See, Jesus was a storyteller. If he was going to confront a worldview and a whole religious system that missed the forest for the trees. He was going to do it with a story. He was going to hit the whole brain. And that's exactly what he did. He wasn't just trying to fact and figure us into the kingdom. He was painting a picture with words. He wanted us to see life in a whole new way. Today, we're going to look at the story of the new wineskins. We're going to look at it from a different perspective. And my hope is that you glean something fresh from it today. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for um, what you're doing in the world today. I pray that you would open our eyes to it, that we would be drawn into your adventure, and that we would be drawn into your story, and that we would learn to speak it like Jesus. We pray for Corrine, Sam, pray that you would um, be with them and that you would be intricately involved in the healing process that Corrine goes through. And for those who are sick and for those who are not here, we lift them up to you, Lord, and ask for your blessings and your love to seep through in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's remind our brains by turning to Luke chapter 5 starting in verse 29. You guys are so digital. I've got one book turner over here. <laughs> it says, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Verse 33, they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he was with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new one will not match the old. And verse 37, And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Now, in my days, I have read this parable. I have listened to people teach on this parable. I have read commentaries on this parable. I am always troubled by it because I don't understand wineskins. It's not my language, not my wheelhouse. This parable has plagued me for a long time uh, because I still feel like it's shrouded and it's a little bit unclear, mostly because it's outside of my culture. But we might, and we do, understand this general sense that people don't like change. But that last line, the old is better, what does that mean? I think if we look at the context of the story, where it's at in the book, it'll tell a little bit of the story itself. So this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's just started calling disciples to himself to follow him. And if you don't know anything about the process of the way rabbis would call their disciples to them, you might just know, you might just be with the, familiar with the way Jesus did it, and it's to you, this is normal. He just walked by some fishermen and said, hey, come follow me. But that wasn't the process. They had educational standards, you know, starting at the age of five. 
and only the elite of the male Jews could continue over the years. And eventually, probably between the time they were 17 and 20 years of age, they would go through sort of an application process with a rabbi that they were interested in following. So they would pick a rabbi that they liked, and then if, if he agreed, then he would issue the invite to come follow him. That's very different than the way Jesus did it. Once the rabbi would approve them, he would say, are you ready to come follow me? But he would first grill them, right? He wanted to know their knowledge of the law. He wanted to know their theology. He wanted to know that they were made of the right stuff. But then there was Jesus. There need be no process because he wasn't looking for those who were schooled in the traditional framework. In fact, he came to dismantle the traditional framework. So fishermen, tax collectors, no matter. Contrary to the system at the time and contrary to the way our society still thinks Jesus wasn't looking for sinless purebreds who understood the deepest levels of theology. So when he picked Levi, the tax collector, who we also know as Matthew, Levi must have felt like he just won the lottery. He had made a fortune on the backs of his own people. He was living a wealthy life as a tax collector. He was probably despised by his own people. But Jesus picked him. And he said, come follow me. So what did Levi do? He threw a rager. He threw a party, a huge party. And most people probably were not there to celebrate. Well, let's hear it. Let's tell the story differently. The dinner party promised to be amazing. But most of the people that came weren't there for the food or drink. They were there for the spectacle. After all, it's not every day that one of the town's richest criminals gives away his racket to follow a traveling religious group. But here we are. Levi, a well-known extortionist, was coming clean and changing his ways to follow Jesus, a man both revered and despised, depending on your bend. Levi was speaking... I'm sorry, Levi was spending a wad of not-so-hard-earned cash to throw this party, and it attracted a lot of attention. It attracted a lot of attention from the church folk that were at the party to see what was happening. Both the curious and those who considered Jesus a liability to their faith. Upon seeing the lavish layout, they couldn't control their contempt for long. Jesus was at the head of the table, the place of honor, next to Levi, when the religious folk who threw all their manners out the window approached with a complaint. And the senior pastor said, Teacher, look at this spread. You know what's paid for with stolen money, right? You're better than this. Why do you spend all your time with losers and criminals? Why waste time trying to teach prostitutes and cheats and the sick who probably deserve the disease they have? Levi was embarrassed. But the good teacher patted his knee and then addressed the crowd. Do you visit the doctor? When you're feeling great 
and everything is good? Of course not. I'm not here to try to change the lives of the moral and the upright. I'm here to invite those outside the fold to change their lives. The church people shrugged in uncomfortable agreement, and on their way back to their seats, they took a look at the table where the fishermen were seating. The fishermen were, shall we say, feeling the wine and speaking loudly and sometimes crudely. These guys in their blue-collar clothing with wild behavior looked like a bull in a china shop. And the pastor looks at the fishermen and then turns back to Jesus and says, John's disciples, like most disciples in the church, they fast and pray and they live devout lives. Then he looks back at the ruffians. Your disciples, (laughs) they're always eating and drinking and going to parties with you. Surely there are better candidates, more trained, more devout, more knowledgeable than these. And Jesus, without embarrassment of his own or without hesitation, says, when you're at a wedding, you celebrate. It would be distasteful to not eat the cake and drink the wine because this is a time of joy. Jesus looks at his rowdy, ragtag followers as they tear into another platter of food and he smiles. After the celebrations have calmed down, they'll get back to work. But when the party is on, we celebrate. He could see the look of the church people's eyes, disgust, confused, even angry, as if there was a communal expression that said, this isn't how it's supposed to be. This this is not how things are done. And Jesus says, leaning in, let me tell you a story. A horse... A horse trainer would never yoke an old plow mare together with a jumping show horse and then take them to the track together. The old mare would just plow the track and the show horse would try to jump over every rail and they'd hurt one another and they'd probably ruin the harness. The church people still looked confused. So Jesus continued, imagine there's a master architect who devises an entirely new way to build a house. And when he's ready to build, he goes out and hires a bunch of young men from around the town. They are so green that he has to teach them how to swing a hammer. An onlooker sees this and says, why don't you just hire a contractor? You'll probably save a lot of time and probably a lot of money by getting some people with experience. The master architect laughs, and he says, that's exactly the point. I can't teach trained professionals how to do this work because they're already set in their ways. They believe they know what is right. They might wreck my whole project by doing it the old way. Jesus looks over the table with his friends once again, and he concludes. So the architect says to the onlooker, I am doing something new. And I need fresh minds, uncluttered with their opinions and expertise on carpentry. After all, the old carpenters will say that the old ways are best. But I am doing a new work. 
the elders follow Jesus' gaze to the table of his disciples, still drinking wine. One of them mumbles, uncluttered minds for sure. And they go hobble back to their seats. And that's a retelling of the wineskin story. Do you see the difference? Do you feel maybe that? What Jesus was trying to explain is the old ways don't work in the new kingdom. The religious leaders in Luke 5 were rude and indignant and downright mean in this passage. And one of the things that I think is so telling of the personality of Jesus is that he did not ruin the party because of their, you know, their interruption. He answers them, and he answers them kind of dismissively, but I think the moment that catches me the most is that he taught them, even in the midst of their indignation, even as they were being rude, he took the time to tell them a story. There's lots of reasons for telling the story. Number one is people will argue, people will always argue facts and figures, but nobody ever argues with a well-told story. Just like in the story. But he also takes a moment to teach them through the story that they are missing the point. Even these people who are coming at him and accusing him, he takes the moment to tell them the story that they're missing the point because stories resonate. In our triune brains, they stick, they remain, they sink in, and eventually they will change the way you think, which is the very definition of repentance. The story itself, it reminds me, at least, that God isn't looking for perfect people. He's not looking for someone with their act all together. He's happy to meet you where you are. He's looking for learners. For me, it's a rich reminder that being a disciple isn't about being fake or rigid or pretending to have all the answers. It's about the fact that in spite of my rough edges, and maybe even because of my rough edges, that Jesus doesn't just love me, but he likes me and you. And he calls us in to his party and invites us to follow him through all of life. In joy, in hardship, in death. And finally, in resurrection. And the beauty of it is the story that Jesus started telling is lived on in our lives today. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for meeting with us, for even revealing simple things and simple truths and reminding us, Father, that you, who you are, that you love us and that you like us and that you call us to walk with you through all of life. And we're thankful for that. We pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds even as we continue this conversation and pray, Lord, that you would again be with our pastor and his wife today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.